Luke 24, beginning in verse 50. Regarding Jesus, it says, He led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. And Father, we ask as we take in this morning this last section or portion of the gospel of luke that lord even as you've spoken to our heart in many different ways at many different times through the different chapters and verses as we've just surveyed through the length and duration of it we pray once again lord that that you would speak to us personal words that we need to hear as individuals that you'd speak to us collectively as a congregation that we would have an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church. That, Lord, you just put a capstone, as it were, on the end of this gospel, of this book in the Bible, as we've studied it together. And we ask for your spirit to be our teacher, and that you would bless your word as we study it together this morning. And we thank you in advance for doing such, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I think it is well to be said that departures and separations in our lives are really many times a process of following the will of God. That as we seek to follow God's will for our lives, a part of that journey at different times or stages and seasons will involve occasions where there's a departure from something or from someone. Uh, There are times when there will be separations that take place in our life and times of transition will indeed happen if the Lord is the one leading us. He's a shepherd, and shepherds lead their flocks. And a part of shepherding is to continue to take your flock to new locations. They don't keep the flock in the same place continuously. And there are times and seasons for various reasons when a shepherd will transition his flock. And times of transition are a part of what happens when the Lord is leading us. And times of transition, if we're honest, they require adjustment. That's just a part of the transition process. Adjustments come with transitions. But listen, transitions do not mean that things have to be worse. In fact, oftentimes, transitions and the adjustments they bring, really, oftentimes, things can become better. And the passage in front of us concludes now Luke's record of the gospel ministry of Jesus Christ. And we now read here of the ascension of Jesus back into heaven to the right hand of his father from whence he came. And the ascension of Jesus, if you notice, back up into heaven was a time of transition. When you think of the ascension, what should come to your mind is a time of transition. And this time of transition, though it was one and brought adjustments, it brought a good change. In fact, it actually expanded the ministry of Jesus beyond just the local scope of Israel, and it expanded the ministry of Jesus beyond just one generation. So the the ascension was a transition, but it was a good transition, and it was a transition that made things actually better ultimately. And Jesus had been telling his disciples that he would eventually return back into heaven. In fact, we see this in the Gospels. John chapter 6, verse 62, Jesus spoke of seeing the Son of Man ascend back to where he was before. In John chapter 20, verse 17, there Jesus said this. He said, do not cling to me. He was talking to Mary when she saw him after the resurrection. And he said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father. So Jesus made it clear that he was going to go away. He had been telling the disciples of this, that he would be departing from them, returning back into heaven. But he also, remember, continuously assured them that he wasn't going to just abandon them. He wasn't going to just leave them like orphans and just completely abandon them altogether. Though he was departing, he wasn't going to abandon them. In fact, he had been assuring them that what he was going to do was be sending the Holy Spirit to dwell with them and also to indwell 
inside of them, to come live inside of them. And what Jesus wanted them to realize is even as he had been there physically, presently in a body of flesh, walking with them, teaching them, helping them, guiding them, that in the same way he had been assisting them in their spiritual lives, now via the agency of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, that they would continue to receive direction and help and teaching and understanding. And now Jesus was going to help them in just a different way. He would transition and minister to them in this way instead. Actually, it would be as well a good transition and the Spirit coming would actually, Jesus is trying to help them see, it would make things better. In fact, listen to Jesus' own words about that in John 16. He said, but now I go away to him who sent me. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, referring to the Holy Spirit, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. See, the point is this. The way they would relate to Jesus was going to change. He would no longer be physically present in the flesh. They wouldn't relate to him in the way that they had been prior to that time. They would now relate to him in a new way via the agency of the Spirit of God whom he would be sending to them at this point. And John chapters 14 through 16 give a lengthy discourse and discussion about those very truths. And it'd be wise to acquaint yourself with them. And that's what Jesus continued to talk about in those chapters. Again, the Bible makes it very clear after Jesus rose from the dead that he spent over a month. In fact, Acts chapter 1 verse 3 says that he spent 40 days presenting himself alive to his disciples and speaking to them about the things of the kingdom of God. So after Jesus rose from the dead for over a month, remember, and we've seen some of the accounts in Luke's gospel, he kept appearing and then disappearing and appearing and disappearing. And he would step out of the spiritual realm and he would step into the present physical realm and he would speak to them and he would reveal himself to be alive. And what Jesus was doing as a part of that was number one, convincing them he was indeed alive. But he also, please understand, was cultivating in their understanding the ability by faith to realize that, listen, just because you don't see me now with your eyes, as you have the past 33 and a half years that I've been walking on this planet in a body of flesh as a man, just because you don't see me now with your eyes does not mean that I'm not alive. It doesn't mean that I'm not still actively working it does not mean that i'm not still available to help you and that's why he kept appearing and disappearing and appearing and many times he'd step right in at the moment and they were having a real critical conversation and he would just kind of pick up and interrupt the conversation which indicated guess what though they didn't see him he was right there listening to their conversation remember he does that with thomas thomas says you know what i don't understand how you i won't believe Unless I see the wounds for myself, I need to see the very wounds in my... And Thomas was just a skeptic. He wasn't an, you know, somebody who struggled with doubt. He just was a skeptic. He said, I need to see for myself. And what did Jesus do? It was at that moment, Jesus just stepped right in and he said, here you go, Thomas. See, touch me. Touch the wounds for yourself. Indicating, Thomas, I've been here the whole time you've been saying all that. I've been hearing everything that you've been saying. And he was continually cultivating this understanding for the disciples that though they didn't see him with a natural eye, it did not mean he wasn't alive and available to them and actively at work still. And he was preparing them for this time that we read about here in the end of Luke's gospel when he would ultimately depart and ascend back up into heaven from whence he came to again be at the right hand of the Father. And Luke now records this account of the ascension of Jesus back into heaven. Look with me again back in verse 50. As Luke gives us his record, he says there that Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and then he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. Take notice here, the very last thing the Spirit of God records for us that Jesus did before he departed and went back to heaven is that he did two things. We read here that he led and he blessed his disciples. 
Last thing we have recorded that he does before he ascends back up into heaven, the Holy Spirit tells us that he led the disciples and he blessed the disciples. First of all, in verse 50 there, it says that he led the disciples where? To the location that he himself chose for this spiritual transition. It says there that he led them out as far as Bethany. Now, Jesus could have selected anywhere he preferred to be his departure point to be the place you know where he would depart from earth and go back into heaven he could have picked anywhere at all to do such a thing and would you agree that was a pretty important defining moment in the life and ministry of jesus christ i mean his whole ministry and life was wonderful but there were certainly some defining moments in the life and i think this was one of them when he came and he was born that was a defining moment when he was crucified that was a defining moment when he rose from the dead and now here here's another defining moment it is the moment where jesus now is departing and transitioning his ministry on earth is over and he's going back to heaven from where he'd always been and i say that for this reason this is a big transition of his ministry and there are many good locations that jesus could have picked for doing such a thing i mean he could have picked somewhere like bethlehem that was where he was born that might not have been a bad choice right you show up in bethlehem god coming to earth and he showed up in bethlehem he could have went right back to where it all started and departed from bethlehem or he could have picked somewhere like Nazareth. That was where he grew up. He had a real connection to that community where he was raised in before he began his public ministry. Jesus could have picked Capernaum. That was his ministry headquarters. Or how about Jerusalem? That was the religious capital of the day. That was the place in which he was crucified. But yet it tells us that Jesus, it says, led them out to Bethany and that's where he departed and ascended back into heaven. Bethany is basically just a small village on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, about two miles from Jerusalem. The Gospels tell us it was a place that Jesus frequently went to fellowship and spend time with different people. And the question I asked this morning is, so why? He could have picked anywhere. Why did he choose Bethany? Why? Well, here, you ready? It's really profound. This is very, very profound. Here's why Jesus chose Bethany. Because he wanted to. Because he wanted to. See, the way I see it, I don't have any other standing, I don't have any other indication of why he chose Bethany for this really defining moment of his ascension. I don't have any understanding or reasoning that I can find in the Bible or in my own comprehension of why Jesus chose that particular location to do what he did there that season and moment of his ministry. But this is what I do know. He's the Lord. And that's what he chose. And that's the place that he selected. And that was the location that he preferred. And, and because of that, really, the disciples are seen here doing what? They're just following Jesus to the spot where he chose. They're just letting Jesus lead to where he intends to do this. And they're submitting to where he's going. And you hear Jesus here just guiding them. It says he led them out to Bethany. And I love the description there. Jesus led them. Listen, gang, if there was anything these disciples learned in the years of following Jesus, it was very simply this, that things always worked out best when Jesus led and they followed. If they didn't learn any other lesson, that was a clear lesson they learned many times. They found out many a times over that it always worked out best when he led and they followed. Whenever the disciples led according to their own preferences or their own ideas or they, they acted in their own reasoning, what looked best, what seemed best or what they wanted or just preferred for themselves, whenever that happened, it always ended in problems. There were always difficulties and they always ended up off track. But when Jesus was the one that they let just make the decisions in everything that they, and they just let Jesus make decision and they followed him like sheep, quite the opposite happened. That was when, even though they may not have understood what he was doing in the moment and they might not have grasped it. And a lot of times they question, they didn't even understand, why is he doing this or why is he going there? What always ended up happening is it worked out best and they ended up being blessed and well taken care of because he's a good shepherd. And I point this out by way of application for us this morning because as the Lord's disciples, we need to let Jesus lead us. 
We need to allow Jesus to be the one to lead us where he wants us to be. Individually, we need to let Jesus lead us where he wants us to be. As families, we need to let Jesus lead us where he wants us to be. As a church, we need to let Jesus lead us where he wants us to be. The Bible teaches us that one of the ways God pictures what we are is that we are sheep. And if there's one thing that we all know about sheep, they have a very poor sense of direction in life. They do not know how to direct themselves. And that's why sheep need a shepherd. And the Bible pictures Jesus as the great shepherd, the overseer of our souls. And because we as sheep have a poor sense of direction, we need Jesus to lead us where is best. And today, as Jesus has ascended back into heaven, he still desires to guide us. He still desires, I believe, to give direction to Christians and to the church here on earth to lead us where he wants us to be so that we might ultimately be in the right location, doing the right thing at the right time, and so on and so forth. And so important for us to remember that one of the things the Bible teaches is a present ministry of Jesus Christ is that he is the head of the church or the head of the body of Christ. The Bible calls us the body of Christ, like the picture of a human body with different functions and different members that make up a body, but it's all one body. We all have different purposes and gifts, and, 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 but we're all one body. And the Bible tells us that Jesus is the head, that he's the head of the church or the head of the body. Colossians 1.18 says Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Ephesians 1 verse 20 to 22 says this, The Father raised Jesus from the dead, seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but that which is to come. And listen to this. And he, that's the Father, he has put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. Listen, as a fellowship of believers, let us recognize and live responsibly to the headship of Jesus Christ. So important for us that we would be seeking his direction and desiring that he would be the one to lead us and allowing him to do that. Recognizing that's his role. That's his function. We're not supposed to be steering the ship and say, God, I'm going north. Would you bless the, the winds behind my northern direction? And yet a lot of times we do that. As individuals, we kind of, we pick our direction and, and then we pray, oh Lord, I just ask that you would bless this relationship or bless this job endeavor or, or bless this new pursuit or, and we pick our direction and then we ask God to bless it. No, 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 wait a minute. That's not the way it's supposed to work. We should be seeking the Lord for direction because honestly, he knows what's best for us. He knows where the green pastures are. He knows where the wolves and the dangerous spots are and he wants to direct us. And it should begin with us saying, Lord, what's on your mind? What do you see? What do you know that I don't know? Lord, would you direct me? Would you guide me? As families, we should be saying, Lord, where would you have us? What would you have us to be doing? What would you have us to be involved in? Lord, would you direct us? Direct us, seeking his direction. And listen, as a church, as a local fellowship of believers, we have to recognize by faith and the way we responsibly live and operate as a congregation that Jesus is the head of the church. A pastor is not a head of a church. Elders are not the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. Yes, the Bible tells us that there is a role of spiritual leaders that exist, but the role of a spiritual leader as an under-shepherd is nothing more than to seek the direction that Jesus is supplying and just to implement that. It's not, the role of a spiritual leader is not to give direction to the church. The role of a spiritual leader is to receive direction for the church, to receive that direction from the mind of Christ to know what's on his mind to understand where he is going to say, hey, 
listen, the master's going this way. It seems this is what's on God's mind or on God's heart and where the Lord is leading and, and, and to just implement that as an under-shepherd for God's people as a flock to follow along with that. And again, how important that we would want to know, Lord, where do you want to lead us? Where do you want to lead us doctrinally? Where do you want to lead us in outreach? Where do you want to, Lord, where do you want to lead us? And that we would be looking to him seeking the direction of the Lord. How beautiful to me that one of the last things we see Jesus doing is he led them. And he led them to where he wanted them to be. And we may not always understand what he's doing or why he's leading to where he's leading or for what purposes or reasons, but listen, he knows best. Let's just trust him by faith in our lives, with our families, among our fellowship, and let him give the guidance that he greatly desires to for us. Notice as well in this verse, it says, Jesus led them, and then verse 50, lifted his hands, and right before he departs, it says that he blessed them. Here you have Jesus acting sort of like in the function of a high priest. And in the Old Testament, often priests would do this. They would lift up their hands, and they would pronounce a blessing over the people of God. In fact, you might want to jot in your notes or in your Bible, Numbers chapter 6, verse 22 to 27. There's one of the places where God commands the priests to do this very thing, where they would lift up their hands and they were to say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord, you know, be gracious to you. And that priestly blessing they would pronounce really was just a way for them to ask for God's best to be upon his people. That was the purpose behind pronouncing the blessing, just asking for God's best for his people. Now, as a direct result of Jesus ascending back up into heaven, where he will sit at the right hand of the Father, when Jesus returns to heaven, immediately, the Bible teaches us, he will then assume the role of being our great high priest in things pertaining to God. Now, if a human priest in the days of the Old Testament would pronounce a blessing and God said when you pronounce a blessing I will put my blessing upon my people if that was effective how much more effective when the Lord Jesus Christ himself our great high priest seeks to bless our lives to me that would be way more effective and far reaching and to me how wonderful as well to see the heart of our Jesus is what notice it is to bless his disciples I love the way the Bible says that, that he blessed them. It came to pass, verse 51, while he blessed them. The heart of Jesus was to bless his disciples. We read in regards to how Jesus interacted with small children in Mark chapter 10, verse 16. It says he took the children into his arms and he blessed them. And the Bible tells us that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The heart of the Lord the character of the Lord, his nature, it does not change. Which means this morning we can have confidence by faith that it is always the heart of the Lord, I believe, to want to bless his followers. It is just in the nature of who God is. God is kind. God is gracious. God is a loving father. And he's benevolent. And therefore his very nature is what motivates him to want to bless. In fact, Psalm 67 says this, God, our own God, shall bless us. Listen, this morning, despite what you think of yourself, or maybe despite the way you were treated by your parents, or you're still being treated by other people, and, and, and you had to earn everything and deserve everything, and if you didn't behave well, and, 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 and listen, God is a good, loving Father. And none of us deserves anything. And it's not a matter of what we deserve or who we are or how well we perform. The bottom line is God blesses because God is good. Because he's good. Jesus said he makes the rain come on the just and the unjust. Why? Because he's good. It's just his nature. And by faith, and this was a challenge for me for many years, and it's something I still wrestle with even in my own Christian life because I'm a natural-born legalist. It's my challenge. And to just by faith realize, listen, God wants to bless me and I can say that and I can believe by faith because of who he is that I can humbly expect every day for God to bless because of who he is 
and, and simply by faith relating him. Without faith, it's impossible to believe God and those who come to him must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Listen, this morning, by faith, believe God wants to bless your life. He wants to bless you. Just like a father naturally desires to bless his children, we're evil human fathers, how much more God in his great love for us and we can humbly expect the blessing of the Lord to be poured out upon our lives. What a wonderful thing to know that you can humbly say, Lord, I can't wait to see how you're going to bless. I can't wait to see how you're going to bless this day or bless this next season and to expectantly in humility look to him to do that in our lives. Verse 51 says, notice that it came to pass while he was blessing them that he then was parted from them and carried up into heaven. So as Jesus is pronouncing this blessing, right in the midst of pronouncing the blessing, and again, maybe as he was blessing them, even as he was ascending or as he closed up, but as he's pronouncing the blessing, the Bible records, he then begins to depart from earth and to ascend or rise back up into heaven at this point. Now, Mark chapter 16 and Acts also record for us in the first chapter some other additional details regarding this event of the ascension of Jesus. Mark 16 verse 19 says, So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Acts chapter 1 tells us, Now when Jesus had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received them out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, angelic beings, no doubt. And those angels said, as they watched Jesus ascend, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So take note here of these two accounts, Mark's account, Acts chapter 1, we get additional details pertaining to this event of the ascension of Jesus back to heaven. First of all, especially from Mark's account, we see that when Jesus raised back to heaven, it says that Jesus then sat down at the right hand of God. One thing we need to connect with the ascension of Jesus back to heaven is that now Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And the right hand of a king's throne was always a place of highest prominence. The right hand of the throne of a king was that place of superior importance. You know, we say to this day still, maybe if you're a corporate executive, you say, this is my right hand man. And people know what that means. This is my right-hand man. This is the individual who's at the place of highest superiority right next to me, and they have the, the power of my authority backing them. They act in my name. And we understand what that means, to have a right-hand man. Well, to be at the right hand of the throne of a king was a place of prominence, of power, granting the authority to act on the throne's behalf, and the Bible repeatedly tells us that Jesus is sitting right now at the right hand of God the Father. Hebrews 12, Ephesians 1, Colossians 3, multiple passages teach us this. And because Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, that means that there are some benefits that are provided to us as God's people. First of all, Jesus being at the right hand of the Father teaches us that his present ministry at the right hand of the Father is want of intercession for you and I as the people of God. Listen to what Romans chapter 8 says in verse 33 and 34. It says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died and furthermore is risen and who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says that if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Hebrews 7, verse 24 and 25 tell us the same thing, that he lives forever and he's there making intercession for us at the right hand of the Father. In other words, again, 1 John chapter 2, the idea of the advocate there is literally a term that speaks of a legal representative or an attorney. It pictures Jesus as our defense attorney. That when we fail and we falter spiritually, and we all do, and when we sin, 
The Bible tells us that as Christians, that we have someone who is our advocate, our representative at the right hand of the Father. So when we blow it and the devil says, yeah, look what they did. Look what they did. Jesus, as our defense attorney, says, Father, yes. But I paid for that upon the cross. And my blood was shed for that. And that one belongs to me. And so, Father, it doesn't matter who's trying to condemn them or what the devil is trying to make them believe. Father, would you reassure them that there's no condemnation because they're in Christ Jesus. And Jesus there, he intercedes for us amidst our failures. What an amazing picture. Picture Jesus as a defense attorney. Don't get the wrong idea, but it's a beautiful idea that he's there defending your case, assuring your spiritual rival that you are liberated and free from your failures from the past and your present struggles. He's there defending you before his Father's throne, speaking well of you because you're under his shed blood and you're in a position of grace because of your faith in him and his finished work. What a beautiful thing to picture him interceding on our behalf. Secondly, because Jesus is the right hand of the Father, he also, as I said earlier, functions in a ministry of our great high priest pertaining to spiritual things in our lives. The book of Hebrews focuses on that current ministry of Jesus Christ and how he is sitting there as our representative like a great high priest to help and to assist us in our spiritual lives. Meaning that as we walk out our Christian life as a child of God, in the same way the priest in the days of Israel in the Old Testament, the priest served as a mediator. It was a picture of Jesus Christ. But the priest served as a mediator between God and man. And the priest was there to help and to assist the people of God in their spiritual life where they needed it. Well, the Bible says that's what Jesus is alive and doing today at the right hand of the Father. Listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. It says, Therefore, in all things, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Do you see what the Bible tells us? That in order for Jesus to be a faithful and merciful, compassionate high priest for us, he came to this earth and he lived in a body of flesh like you and I. So that he could experience what it was like to be tired physically, to be hungry, to be lonely, to be betrayed, to be hurt. Jesus experienced everything in a body of flesh. Why? So that when we're tempted and faced with all the same things of a natural experience in our humanity, we can go to Jesus and he fully understands because he experienced it all. It's not that God's aloof and how could God relate to me, what I'm feeling? He can relate. He actually came and lived in a body of flesh so that when you're tempted, you can go to Jesus and say, Lord, can you aid me? This is really tempting me and, and this is making me struggle. And the wonderful thing is that's where victory is because the Bible says he was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. So see, when I keep failing in areas of temptation, I can go to Jesus and he fully relates and he says, you know what, I was tempted with the same thing, but see, he never failed. And so Lord, only you can show me how to overcome this. As, as one who was God and man, can you help me in my humanity? Can you aid me to overcome this temptation? And Jesus will do that. Jesus will assist. Listen as well to how he writes in Hebrews 4, verse 15 and 16 of the same thing. It says, We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points, here it is, tempted as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us come boldly, the eye is confidently, to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The Bible says confidently. It says as a Christian, you can with confidence by faith come to the throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help in your time of need. Hey, are you struggling with some area of temptation or sin in your life? There is a throne of grace because of what Jesus did just waiting for you to approach it by faith alone in the finished work of Jesus. And Jesus saying, listen, you don't have to be afraid. Come to me. I want to help you have victory over this. I want to liberate you. I want to deliver you. I want to assist you. 
Whatever you need the grace of God to help you with in your life, maybe it's some life-dominating habit or, or being controlled by depression or anxiety or, or guilt or bitterness. Listen, come to Jesus. You can come directly, confidently to a throne of grace. And he wants to help. He's alive and he's able to help because of what he's accomplished and what he's available to do on our behalf. One other thing that's a wonderful promise we have in the word of God is that Jesus being at the right hand of the Father actually assures us with confidence that greater ministry can be taking place even now in this generation on the earth. Jot in your notes this verse, John 14 verse 12. Jesus there made an incredible promise. He said this, Listen to what Jesus said. These are his words. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also and greater works than these. He will do because I go to my father. Now, the first time I read that, I went, whoa, I can do the same works as Jesus. And, and then he went, and that'd be blasphemous for me to say that, but he said that. And he actually went on to say, greater works than these you will do because I go to my Father. What did Jesus mean? Well, very simply this. When Jesus was on earth in a body of flesh, he was limited to one body. He could only be in one place at one time. He could only be ministering in Galilee or ministering in Jerusalem or ministering in Bethany. Or mi he could only, he was, he was in a body, he was confined to a body of flesh. So he could only be doing ministry right where he was with the power of God working through his life. But now that he's ascended and he's gone back to the Father and Jesus said, the Bible teaches Christ in you. That Jesus Christ by his Spirit indwells the people of God and Jesus lives in us by his risen, resurrected Spirit and Jesus says, guess what? I'm not limited to one body now. Now I can work through Brian's life and now I can work through Kevin's life and now I can work through Dom's life and, and, I can, and wherever, wherever my people are, my presence and my power can flow through their life and greater things can be happening because now the body of Christ, wherever we're at, the presence and person of Jesus Christ is with us and his ministry can exponentially expand because he can be loving people and talking to people and praying for people and touching people and serving people wherever his people are because he lives among us. He lives within us as the body of Christ. Amazing. Because Jesus ascended, his ministry really has greater potential in much wonderful ways beyond even what his earthly ministry was like. His ministry continues as he lives out through his people. The Acts chapter 1 passage, one other thing that we take notice of before we look at these last two verses, there the angel said what? As he was going up into heaven, they said, why are you standing looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who went up will in like manner come back to you once again. So one other thing we find in regards to a detail about Jesus' ascension is his ascension also gives an assurance of his return back to this earth. In the same way he departed from earth and went up to heaven, at that moment when he was ascending, the angels, the word of God came from heaven. That same Jesus who went up to heaven is also coming back from heaven. And he's coming back once again. Again, Jesus, the Bible teaches, will be returning. And one of the primary reasons is to remove believers from this planet to be in his presence forever. Jesus assured the disciples in John 14, 2 and 3 by saying to them, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus says, I'm going and while I'm there, one of the things I'm doing, I'll be preparing a place for you. And if I prepare a place for you, I'm not going to prepare a place for you and then have that place stay vacant forever. I'm preparing a place to come back so that you may come be with me where I am. Amazing. The Bible seems to indicate Jesus' family trade was a carpenter. Now, uh, he's been gone for about 2,000 years. Can you imagine what he's preparing for us? Can you just begin to envision? He says, I'm preparing something for you. The Lord's preparing something for you, but that also means he's going to come back and take you 
as his bride to come and dwell with him in the place that he's prepared. Look at verse 52 and 53. It says, here's their response now. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. So take note, here's the automatic response and even the Bible records the continuing activity of Jesus' disciples once he ascended back to his heavenly throne. The automatic response we see in verse 52 is first of all, they immediately worshiped him and then secondly, they joyfully obeyed him. They immediately worshiped him as he's going up and they're realizing who he is. They're compelled, look verse 52, they're compelled to give glory and homage to Jesus as the great king that he is. It says they worshiped him. And that word there in the original language is proskuneo in the Greek. And it's a term that was used to describe how someone would fall upon their knees and put their head down to the ground at the throne and the foot of a king. And interesting to me that that is the term the Bible uses to describe an expression of worship towards Jesus. It's a picture here of expressing utter humility and rendering the highest regard and veneration and reverence to someone who is so awesome in their kingly position and great authority. That's how the Bible pictures the response of Jesus' disciples recognizing who he was, just in utter humility, bowing in their humiliation and reverencing and worshiping Jesus with incredible veneration. Philippians 2 says that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And can I say this morning by way of application, I think one clear indication I think a clear indication when a person, a man, woman, boy, or girl, when a person has had a true encounter and experience with Jesus is number one, there will be a humility that comes into their life that will prompt them to relinquish their concern of self-consciousness and self-image and that will also at the same time prompt them with an internal desire to want to give worship and glory and reverence and praise to Jesus. It will mark as an evidence of a true experience with Jesus. See, I don't understand this thing of, of well, you know, I don't sing to God because I don't like to sing. Well, God likes you to sing. So, you know, that's why, I, you know, I, 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 I kind of, that, that's my grace time to kind of make my way through traffic and eventually slip in and get into my seat before the Bible says, listen, wait a minute. Isn't Jesus worthy of your worship? Well, I, I don't, if you heard how I sing, I mean, people, listen, it's not about how you sound. Who's it for? It's for him. It's for Jesus. And I have found in my, you know, I tell you, when I encountered Jesus Christ, it was amazing how this consciousness of self-image and self-concern, that's nothing but pride, man. That's saying, oh, I'm more important and my, my image of coolness or whatever is more important than Jesus. No, no, no. You watch people when they meet a king. When people bow down before a human king, what is it in us that, other than pride and selfishness, that keeps us from bowing down to Jesus in our hearts. I'm not saying come here and fall prostrate on the floor. It's not what I'm telling you to do. But bowing our knee to Jesus in here and giving him the worship and the reverence and the adoration that he deserves. I tell you, when a true encounter with Christ happens, that becomes a natural outflow of a heart. It becomes a natural outflow. They, these disciples, when they saw Jesus for who he was, it says they worship proskuneo. They just bowed themselves and began to give worship and glory to the Lord. And not only did they worship him, but also, notice it says, they also joyfully obeyed him because it says they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Again, they returned to Jerusalem. Why? What did Jesus tell them to do in our prior verses? He said, wait, tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high that you may then go out and preach repentance of sins and remission from sins in my name to all nations. So we find them here just as Jesus instructed doing what? Going back to Jerusalem in obedience to what he asked them to do. And that 
initial obedience prepared them for further obedience because they were then empowered by the Spirit of God. And then the Bible tells us in Mark's Gospel, they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the Lord, confirming the Word through signs and wonders. My point again simply is this. Love for Jesus also will always translate into willing obedience. Again, Jesus' own words, John 14, he said, If you love me, keep my commandments. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. He who does not love me does not keep my words. Jesus pretty clearly said to us, love for him can be measured by obedience to him. It's evidenced by our obedience to him. Great way to do inventory in our lives once in a while. How much does my life demonstrate love for Jesus? Well, it's directly connected to my obedience to Jesus. And one of the great ways I can show love for Jesus is to obey him. To obey him shows him that I love him. They joyfully returned in obedience to Jerusalem. Look at verse 53. And they were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. So notice, this was their continuing activity then. Initially, worship, obedience. But what did they do continually? It says they continually assembled together in God's house for times of worship. Again, the temple was the public gathering place to worship God together. And we read here they were continually there, praising and blessing God. One translation says they spent their days in the temple praising God. Another translation says they spent all their time in the temple praising God. You almost get the sense when you look at this and study the book of Acts that these early believers who had, listen, had a much harder life. And it was much more difficult to work and survive and get by in that culture. They worked every day to exist and to keep living. It was a much more difficult life than we have today in our present generation and in our American culture. But you get the sense for these early disciples who had a much harder life that their spiritual devotion didn't seem very periodic. It didn't seem as if their attitude was sort of, well, whenever it's convenient or you know, our commitment to the things of God or to gather to worship God, if we can fit it into our schedule, we're on it. If we can fit it into our schedule. To me, it seems the Bible represents that it was a lifestyle of worshiping God. Worshiping God was what characterized these early believers. The picture is routinely going to the house of God, gathering with his people, praising and blessing him. I almost get the sense, and you feel free to disagree, I almost get the sense that these early believers built and ordered their life schedule around worshiping God as their first priority. I almost get the sense that that's what they did. That they actually, around their commitment to continually be in the temple to worship and praise God, that they built their life schedule around that. In fact, when you study the book of Acts in chapter 2, it says they were gathering daily. If you read Acts 2, verse 42 to 47, you get an expanded description of what these early believers' activities were on a daily basis and how they routinely, regularly, continually assembled together. They wanted to be together. They wanted to gather to worship God. And as present-day followers of Jesus who assemble here, can I just challenge you? Can I challenge us as a congregation? Listen, how are we spending our days? How are we using our time? What is the prioritized thing in our lives? What truly gets the first priority in our lives? Is it worshiping God or is it something else? It's something that we need to search our hearts. What a wonderful example is set before us in the Word of God. A wonderful example to show us how believers ought to order our lives around worshiping God as our first priority. And let me say this morning, not as a pastor, hear me and hear my heart, not as a pastor, as a fellow Christian, been following Jesus since 1992, as a fellow Christian and as a husband and a father, can I encourage you this morning to build your life schedule around worshiping God? 
personally in your own life as an individual build your schedule around worshiping God first and foremost everything else let it find its place and find its time around that first and as a family and, and in your public you know, priority of being with God's people and coming to worship God can I encourage you build your life around that I can't tell you how, ma- how many times I, I've talked to people who you know I've talked to kids even I was talking to a kid recently about something and in relation to can he be involved in church and, and I said to him well look when you're there and he said well look we just you know we always have things to do on Sunday mornings sad you know, talk to someone recently. Hey, I haven't seen you in a while. Just reaching out to them. Are you doing okay? Yeah, we just, you know, just, you know, sports. The sports schedule has just been so busy. What are we teaching our children? And what are we saying to God? Listen, I'm not trying to be legalistic. I'm trying to be realistic. As for me and my house, I can tell you since 1992, everything else has time, if there's time, after Jesus comes first. Have my kids been involved in sports and all those kind of things? Yes. But we will do sports after we give our attention and devotion as a family to the Lord first. That's first priority. Not, well, we would, but, you know, church is second when it's baseball season. And again, understand my heart. I just think that our priorities, many times as Christians, are really off track. It concerns me. It concerns me. I look at the heart of these early believers and I see something in them that I so often am convicted about in my personal life and that I want to continue to aspire towards as a husband, as a father leading my home, and as a Christian that my top priority is worshiping God first. And listen, let me ask you a question. Today's a great day. Oh, that sounds wonderful. That sounds fantastic. Ask Jesus to help you make a transition if you need to. Ask him. Today's a great day to make that transition. To make a resolution before the Lord. And Jesus is worth it, is he not? And I tell you this, he's not only worth it, it works. It works. Matthew 6.33 is one of my life verses. It says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. I can tell you, if you live your life with Jesus Christ as your top priority personally and as a family, and you always say, first we will seek Jesus, first we will give attention to Jesus, and whatever else has time, or I can get, but I will always first put Jesus first. Jesus says, you do that, and my promise is I will add things into your life. And let me tell you, I have seen God add so many things into my life that I didn't work for, chase after, go for, whether it's providing in amazing ways. Just put Jesus first. Put Jesus first. May we be a people who put Jesus first. He is worthy of our worship, and it works when we live our lives that way. Amen? Let's stand. Let's give the Lord a final time of worship from our hearts. Father, we do commit these things to you. Thank you for, Lord, this portion of Scripture. Lord, a simple account, but Lord, how things resonate with my heart. And I pray, Father, will resonate in our hearts as a fellowship. And again, Lord, we understand your grace, but we just ask, would you give us a passion, a passion, Lord, to desire all that you have for us and to give you our greatest devotion from our hearts and in our lives. And Lord, if we need to make changes, give us the grace to do that and the determination to choose to respond to you in Jesus' name. Amen.